Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Today we're talking about a very interesting character in music history, both because of his nationality and the time period he lived in. It's none other than Antonio Soler and his Fandango in D minor. Francisco Javier Jose Soler Ramos, or just Antonio Soler, please, <laughs> was born in Catalonia, Spain in a precarious period in music history, with his life overlapping with both Bach, who lived from 1685 to 1750, and Mozart, who lived 1756 to 1791. So where does that put him era-wise? Well, we'll discuss that a little bit later. But first, like so many, especially early, composers, Soler's father was a musician who first began to teach him music. And he went on to have his formal music training in the Escolania Music School in the Monastery of Montserrat. Here, he became well-versed in the great organ works of the Spanish Baroque. In 1752, when he was 23 years old, Soler was appointed the Maestro di Capilla at the Seo de Urgel Cathedral, which is the oldest cathedral in Catalonia. At this time, he also began his priesthood by being ordained as a subdeacon. That same year, he also joined the monks in El Escorial and soon became the Maestro de Capilla there as well. And although Soler lived in the middle of the 18th century in a monastery, he was actually a model Renaissance man. He would work until midnight and then wake up again at 4 a.m. to begin his day. Good lord. He was a competent mathematician, inventor, and Latin scholar, in addition to his fabulous keyboard playing and composing. Throughout his tenure at El Escorial, Soler interacted with visiting Spanish royalty and gained the privilege of being the music tutor for Carlos III's son, Prince Gabriel. In order to teach Gabriel proper music theory, Soler invented a sort of keyboard device called the affinador. This box of keys and strings showed the exact difference between a major and minor semitone and also showed the harmonic overtone series of each note. Soler was very fond of music theory, and he wrote several treatises on harmonic modulation with many valid and ingenious ideas, such as how to modulate keys in the fewest number of bars. He received much criticism for his new ideas, but his theories were based on analysis of such Baroque greats such as Palestrina and Scarlatti, and was backed up by an additional publication by José Vila, another Spanish musician who supported Soler's ideas. Soler taught Prince Gabriel until his death in 1783, having written over 400 pieces including extensive keyboard sonatas, chamber music, sacred music, and even some works for theater. So as we circle back to Soler's output, where do we place him in the eras of classical genre music? The Baroque period is usually said to have ended in 1750, which is the year that Bach died. But Mozart was born just six years later, and all of his compositions fit nicely in with the classical era. 
Soler, though strongly influenced by the Baroque, can safely be grouped into the classical era. Why are we so confident in saying that? Well, by the time of his death, Bach was actually very out of fashion. During his heyday of the High Baroque, he was the pinnacle of Baroque style, fugues and counterpoint, all heavily ornamented and exaggerated. Now, the classical era was, if you can believe it, actually a rebellion against the Baroque. Here, composers were all about the galant style that favored period melodies, four-bar phrases, and sophistication. It was all about being modern and universal, for this was the Enlightenment period, after all. And Soler, of course, would not have wanted his music to sound outdated, so his style does tend towards the classical. However, being both Spanish and a monk, Soler really has a completely different style than either Bach or Mozart could ever have had, as they were members of the Prussian Empire. And even if we were to claim that Soler and Mozart were both influenced at some time or another with some sound of folk songs, in each of their countries, these folk songs sound completely different. So with all this in mind, it doesn't really matter where we place Soler in our historic categories. He was his own person with his own unique take on what music could sound like. So let's speak about the Fandango. Soler was a man of the church, but he still found time to write this fun dance piece. A fandango is, of course, a specific type of Spanish up-tempo folk dance. This piece was written simply for keyboard, as the score states. Soler had all variety of keyboards available to him. The Baroque's favorite harpsichord, the ever-present organ, and the newly popularized forte piano. This piece could really be played on any of these instruments with great effect. There is some question about if Soler actually composed this work. It is unlike any other work in his output. Upon analysis, it is probably the only piece attributed to Soler that is a theme in variations and has a consistent Alberti baseline throughout. But if Soler is not the true composer, then that person's identity remains a mystery. The work itself is a lovely mix of dance themes and fantasias, at the beginning, we hear an introduction. And parts of this sound almost like a cadenza, or Baroque fantasy, while other parts sound like they could be part of the official piece. The piece actually starts in A minor, and throughout a series of modulations, we finally get to our key of D minor 24 bars into the piece. And then we finally hear the dance. This theme will sprout the variations that are heard throughout the piece. We hear variations that have hemiolas, sparsely placed notes, classical sounding phrasing, And of course, really fast notes. Something I find almost funny about this piece is the extensive reliance on chromatic scales in some of the variations. 
So this is much more chromaticism than we even hear in the late German romantic pieces of the Schumanns we've listened to in the past two episodes. It almost gives a sinister feel to the piece, like music for a silent horror film. And here, we hear that the chromaticism has even moved into the bass line. Overall, the variations on top of the constant bass line serve to make the piece sound almost improvisatory, like an impromptu jam session in the town square. You know, like jazz. And then there's more modulation. At this point, Solerg is going from D minor to F major. He set us up with a dominant, the fifth, A major chord that could resolve to tonic D minor, but instead he takes it down just a major third to F major. He even emphasizes this movement by actually jumping an octave down rather than just moving in stepwise motion. We mentioned earlier that this piece features something called an Alberti bassline. This is a style that was pioneered by the Italian composer Leon Battista Alberti and is characterized by endless arpeggiation of a chord in the bassline. So here is a great example of where the Alberti bassline really stands out. The higher melody has longer notes and rests and is doing its own thing, but the bass line soldiers on regardless. But of course, this has been very distinctive throughout the rest of the piece. We don't need the treble clef rests to point it out. At times, Soler gets kind of cheeky about his modulations. Coming up, we'll hear an extremely classical sounding cadence with the most traditional chord progression out there, the 4-5-1, and this is in the key of A major, the fifth of D minor. But in spite of this sounding like a perfect cadence for A major, it's actually just a preparatory fifth for D minor that we realize Soler has moved back into, but we only realize that about halfway through the next measure. Soler is truly the master of the short, sneaky cadence. And this makes sense, too, because he did write entire treatises on the subject of modulations and chords. That did get some criticism, but we can hear it to great effect in this piece. In spite of us previously telling you that Solaire's style is classical, now we have come upon a section that sounds much more Baroque. Here, Solaire takes a cue from Bach's Inventions, which famously had multiple voice lines being played in each hand. In the Fandango, the upper melody has gained a second voice through having some notes sustain while others move, thus giving a very polyphonic Baroque quality to the work. The piece concludes with a long coda section that is intermingled with the last strains of the theme and variations, with motifs that definitely sound like they came from a Spanish guitar. And it ends with a rush of 16th notes that conclude in a final major chord that sounds like the triumphant strumming of the keyboard's guitar strings.
So we hope you've enjoyed this look at Antonio Soler and his Fandango in D minor, sort of a departure from the very German folks that we have been talking about for the last few episodes. If you liked this episode, feel free to share it with a friend or two, and also remember to leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play. Thank you very much for listening to The Coffee House and for The Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Fandango in D minor was performed by Gabriel Antonio Hernandez Romero. You can find The Coffee House on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Thank you.